Good morning, church. So we've been following Jesus through the gospel of Matthew for the last while. And almost since the beginning, what has Jesus been saying? Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And this morning, as we get into God's word in Matthew chapter 21, starting verse 1, we see the start of the week in which Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God. And he does this in a very distinct way, one that we're kind of accustomed to, with a parade. So let's just get into God's word and see what he has for us this morning. Again, Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on, put on them their cloaks, and, sat, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees um, and spread them on the road. And the crowds then went before him and followed him and were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So this is a rather unique story, isn't it? It's told in all four of the gospel accounts. I mean, people, Jesus is riding on a donkey down into Jerusalem, and people just start going nuts. They start taking off their jackets and laying it on the ground, which at best you hope they just get dusty. I don't know if the rest of the week they're going to have donkey tracks going across their clothes or what, but then people are sawing off branches off the palm trees, and they're laying it down. They are, this is their version of rolling out the red carpet. Right? And people then are starting to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of David. Hosanna, praise him. But when you kind of start to think about it, I don't know if it's because we've heard this story before or so many times, or it's kind of an odd story, isn't it? Maybe we're just a little numb to it because we ourselves have a lot of parades. We're entering into kind of parade season, aren't we? Uh, in Thanksgiving, we have the Macy's, Day, Macy's Thanksgiving Parade, which is always weird that we name our parade on Thanksgiving Day after a department store. But anyway, we blow up big balloons and we walk them through down New York celebrating Thanksgiving. And then the first day of the year, what do we do? We take flowers and plants and every living thing and we plaster it to other things to make them look like other things. And then we parade them down Colorado Boulevard on the first day of the year. Regardless, last year it was close to freezing, like, you know, mid-30s, and gusts of wind up to 35 to 40 degrees or 40 miles an hour. I mean, I, oh, those of you that are from the Midwest, I'm sorry, but that's like frostbite for us here in California. Yet still hundreds came out to watch 
the parade. Then comes the first week of February, right? We have the Super Bowl, and we have the Super Bowl champion, and then whatever the team that wins, where they're from, they go and have a parade. Do you know a million and a half people came out to watch the Super Bowl parade last year? Two years ago, there was a blizzard, and still over a million people came out. Even here in San Juan Capistrano, every March, we have what? The Swallows Day Parade, one of the largest equestrian parades in all of the U.S., and people will show up hours in advance to get their seat on Camino Capistrano just to watch the horses go by, right? But, but parades are kind of this unusual thing where people just line up to watch and maybe shout out just to watch horses and people just kind of prance on by. But Jesus, in doing it, is, trying to, is being intentional. He is proclaiming himself. This is his official proclamation of who he is to the world. Now, he's been teaching his disciples and speaking about who he is in private. But this is the moment in which he comes out and says, this is who I am. And we need to take note of it because every parade is there to declare and to celebrate something. And that is exactly what Jesus and his followers are doing. But see, when we look at this parade, there are several different groups of people who say Jesus is something else than he is saying. And so that brings us to the question this morning, this question that we need to be thinking through when we listen or talk about the triumphal entry is this. Who do you see Jesus to be? Who do you see Jesus to be? Because who you see, who you see Jesus to be will dictate how you think of him, how you approach him, what he means to you, how you ultimately will or will not follow him. So who do you see Jesus to be? So looking at the story, there are three, actually four very distinct groups that see Jesus in different lights. The first one, the first group, they see Jesus as a disruption. The first group, group number one, sees Jesus as a disruption. We see this most clearly in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke's account of the triumphal entry. And so as people are shouting at Jesus, as he's riding on the donkey, coming into Jerusalem, the Pharisees pop up. And this is what they say in Luke 19, verse 39. They say, it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples, basically telling them to shut up. And what does Jesus say? He says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. So to the Pharisees, Jesus was this disruption, this nuisance. Because Jesus, he was up to no good. He was disrupting the order. He was taking away their position and power. People were going to Jesus and not coming to the Pharisees and, and stoking up their pride and their position. And so they were telling Jesus, be quiet. Tell your, the, all these people to be quiet. Just go away. I mean, you can hear their disgust even in the request of Jesus. But really, this isn't that far off from our world today, is it? The Daily Telegraph, a big newspaper in London uh, in 2015, put out this survey, and the result was that three times as many people were more upset after hearing about Jesus than not upset. That means 75% of people that, were, that heard about Jesus or Jesus was shared with them got angry or, or was frustrated. 
Why? Because Jesus, whenever you hear about him and who he is, he will be a disruption. And it's, so, it's easier just to, to not even think about him and put him on a shelf and ignore him in terms of rejecting him. And so when someone brings him right to the front and center, we get upset. Especially if, we haven't, if, we, if we're not following him. And if you're here today and you go, you know, yeah, Jesus is a disruption. I don't really want to hear about him. I'm glad you're here. I don't know if you're here because your mom brought you or someone asked you to come, but I'm glad you're here asking this question who is Jesus? And so the, the Pharisees, they're going, shh, shh, we don't want to hear about Jesus. We don't want to see about him. It's easier to just ignore him. And so the, their answer to who do they see Jesus to be is a disruption. The second group, the first group was a disruption. The second group is a deliverer. They saw Jesus as their deliverer, the future king of Israel, the one that's coming to bring the revolution to overtake the Romans because the Romans, they occupied Jerusalem at the time. And the, and the Israelites, they felt oppressed by the Romans. So they saw Jesus and they, they, saw his, they heard his teachings and they, they saw the miracles. And he had just raised a man from the dead last week. Look at Lazarus. He's walking around. He was dead for four days. Jesus must be the man that's coming to give us back Jerusalem, the very city in which God gave us. I would say that the disciples, the original 12, that they're in this group, that when they saw Jesus, they said, Jesus, he's going to bring us back to our own country, our, give us back our land. He's going to give us Jerusalem. I say that because even after this parade of Jesus after the Passion Week, after the crucifixion, and then the resurrection, and then the month in, in between in which Jesus was just with them and teaching them, right before Jesus ascends to the Father, we see the disciples' last and final departing question. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, this is what it says. They, being the disciples, disciples gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That was the last thing. That was, God, Jesus, at least at this time, are you going to give us back our land? And so they were in this group seeing Jesus. He is our deliverer of what belongs to us from the oppression that we are feeling, the hardship that we have at this time. That is who Jesus is. After hearing this question, I'm surprised Jesus wasn't just like, what? what? And maybe just like vaporize him there, right, on the spot. Have you not been hearing anything that I've been saying for the last three years? And so when the, when the crowd says, Hosanna, praise the one who comes in the name of the Lord, he is our king, what they're saying is, he is our deliverer of our current hardship. The third group, so first we have disruption, second we have deliverer, and I'm sorry, the third one is not a D. Sorry to you Baptists out there, I couldn't come up with one. The third one is a consultant. They see Jesus as this consultant, this guru, this, this expert on God. Because as Jesus, in verse 11, as he's coming into the city of Jerusalem, the people within Jerusalem hear all the commotion going on outside, which this is Passover. All the, all the, the Jews are coming up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and Jerusalem swells to over five times the, the number of occupants than it normally has. There are people everywhere. They're camping, they're, they're finding any place to stay, and they hear this commotion. 
coming on and they go, who is that that they're, that's, yelling, that's bringing all this yelling and screaming? And they go, this is Jesus. And who's Jesus? He's, he's the prophet. He's the one that we've been hearing about from you know, the backwoods of Galilee. He must be a prophet. He must have good things to say. Now, in all honesty, this was probably the highest compliment they could have given Jesus. Because before John the Baptist, they hadn't seen a prophet in 400 years. And so it's good to have a guy that has the, you know, the red telephone with the direct line up to the big man upstairs, and he can bring us a word to bring us back into God's good graces. So they wanted someone to consult, someone to give them a word from the Lord, and they can kind of go, hey, I'll take it or leave it. If I like it, I'll take it. If not, I don't have to. Because see, Israel was not very kind to prophets. One, they weren't very good at listening to them. If you look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah had a ministry of over 30 years. He didn't have one convert. Or if you look at the very words of Jesus, in two chapters later in Matthew, in chapter 23, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as hens gathers her brood under her wings, and you we're not willing. So they wanted a prophet, someone who would bring the word of the Lord if they liked it. If it was to their taste, they would accept it. If not, that was the end. And so prophets, it was, it was dangerous. It was, you, you know the saying, don't shoot the messenger? I think prophets invented that because they had the word of the Lord. They were bringing it, and many times that they were then thrown out as outcasts or even worse because of the word did not agree with the people. And so this is what the people in Jerusalem, who were probably the elitists, the ones that lived in the big city, thought of Jesus. So when they heard, when, when they used prophet, we can automatically hear consultant. You can either take it or leave it. And so Jesus in all three of these groups is either seen as the disruption, the deliverer, or the consultant. But now we need to look at the most important group, the one that sees Jesus for who he is, which is probably a group of one, Jesus himself. So when we look at the story, we, we, we see Jesus, he gets on this unbroken cult, and even that says much about him, right? Because a donkey, a donkey in and of itself is not a very powerful animal, right? When we, when we think of all those parades and, and maybe even a triumphal entry, what do we think of? We think of like a war horse. We think of a chariot. We don't think of a donkey. A donkey was a common animal. It was a beast of burden. And so Jesus, for the very fact that he's getting on a donkey, is lowering himself to the people saying, you know, I, yes, I am a disruptive king, one that will deliver you, who is the very, not bringing the word of God, who is the very word of God. We see it in verse four, where Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. If you look back there with me, it says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, which is the prophet Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of beast of burden. And so Jesus is being very intentional about even 
what he's riding on as he's coming in, what it says about him and who he is. At the Rose Bowl Parade this last year, there was 18 different equestrian groups, right? And they like to bring their, their horses and their stallions and like to show how they can trot and do all these different tricks. If you, and when you look at the list, which one do you think Jesus would have been riding on, coming as this king, this deliverer, this, this one that's going to be disruptive, the consultant, right? I mean, you have the new Buffalo Soldiers. You have the Budweiser Clydesdales. You have the United States Marine Corps Mounted Color Guard or the U.S. Forest Service Pack Mules. I don't think you'd choose the pack mules naturally, right? And the only reason why the pack mules were in the parade was because they were there to commemorate the 75th anniversary of Smokey the Bear. Right? I don't know who should be more offended, the mules or the bears. Because a mule isn't even a donkey. It's half a donkey. And so uh, Jesus, in, in being on a donkey, is saying, I am at your level. I am your king, but I'm not... Right? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And we've been talking about the last three weeks. And Jesus is trying to drive this point home that he is coming not to be served, but to serve. Because we all get it. Important people, they ride in limos, they ride in black escalades with probably police escorts, maybe the Pope Mobile, maybe a Rolls Royce or Ferrari. I mean, Jesus literally chose the Ford Pinto of his day. And this is what he's coming into Jerusalem. But if there's anything else that you leave here today, it is this. That Jesus is our disruptive king, who is the very word of God, comes in all humility. That he is the disruptive king, the very word of God, who is coming in all humility and this is what he's proclaiming. But all the other groups don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it because they have something else. Because he is the prophesied one. He is the very son of God coming to save all. He is the Lord and Savior ushering in the kingdom of God. And what the others are saying is they really want Jesus to be ushering in the kingdom of me. And we can do the very same thing. Because when we take Jesus for all he is, and we just focus on one attribute of him, what we can easily do is we can make him to be what we want to be. Because if he's a disruption and it's too, it's too much of a nuisance for us, we're going we're to ignore him. If he's not the deliverer of the need that I have right now, then we're not going to accept him. If, if he's the consultant that's giving us the wrong advice, we're not going to listen to him. So the people in that day, they're not too far-fetched. They're not that crazy because we can do the exact same thing. Because to say, because it's making Jesus too small because we're not seeing him in all his glory and all that he is and all that he has for us. And we can try to control him to what we want. And so who do you see Jesus to be? If we're honest, I think many times our prayer is this, is if, if we were really sharing, it's Jesus, I want you to be who I want you to be, not who you are. I want you to be who I want you to be, not who you are. Where our prayer really should be, Jesus, you are enough. I am satisfied in you. You and 
all of you are enough for me. As our disruptive king, the very word of God coming in, all of humility, you are enough for me. I don't need to change you. I don't need to just have part of you. I want all of you, and all of you is enough for me. But all of us, we're kind of a mix of all these different camps, aren't we? And this morning, I, I really want to leave you with, with three questions to kind of do a self-audit of where you are because there are different rooms of our souls that we haven't let Jesus in because he's too much of a disturbance or he hasn't given us what we wanted or his words don't agree with us. And so I pray that as we go through these questions, you're, you're kind of doing a self-audit and allowing him into places of your soul that you haven't allowed him before. And so here we go. The first question where in my life do I view Jesus as a disruption? Where in my life do I view Jesus as a disruption? Because I, I think if, if we showed some of the dark places of our heart, we think that Jesus will destroy our life. If you encounter Jesus, you will not be the same. He will change your life, but he will not destroy your life. He will just bring you into the purpose for which you were created for. One of the best examples of this around here is one of our missionaries, Patrick and Sherry Bailey. And they've been missionaries in the Philippines for, I think, 18 to 19 years. They are second career missionaries, meaning they had great jobs here in Orange County. And in their mid-50s, Patrick just started feeling the Lord pressing on him that it was time for them to leave their home, leave their family, leave their friends, and that they were being called into the mission field. They didn't know where then at the time. And this, he started hearing this louder and louder to the point where he shared it with Sherry. You know what Sherry did? Heck no, I am not going to the mission, into the mission field. And she put it out to all her different prayer chains to change Patrick's heart about becoming a missionary. Guess what happened over the next month? Did God start changing Patrick's heart? No. He changed her heart. And if you talk to them about it now, they will tell you that they have lived a completely second life, one that they wouldn't, want, they wouldn't dare give back and that they would want to do it all over again because they've been proclaiming Jesus in the Philippines and seeing him work on the front lines. Jesus doesn't want to destroy your life. He wants you to live for the purpose in which you were created. So where in your life do you view Jesus as a disruption? The second, where in my life do I want Jesus to just deliver me instead of work through me? Where in my life do I want Jesus to just deliver me instead of work through me? And what I mean by this, where do we want Jesus to just take a hardship, take a situation, take um, a, a conflict out of our life instead of Jesus working through that situation? One of the primary examples of this we see at church all the time is health-related concerns. Now, we should be praying for health-related concerns and having full faith that God can heal us, but if that's all we want him to do, we are missing the big picture. We, we need to be seeing God as, you know what, this did not surprise him. This didn't, he, he wasn't 
He knew that we could deal with this. And how, in what way, am I going to see God work through my illness instead of just free me from it? A great book on this is, is written by John Piper, Don't Waste Your Cancer. And he goes through the experience of having cancer himself and how he witnessed God work in ways that he would not have witnessed if he did not have cancer. Another way that we can see this in and around us all the time is through politics, right? When we, when we have a two-party system and one, one party is going insane and the other is crazy and we have to choose, we can just say, Lord, free us from this as Americans, can't we? And we just see how this world is going nuts all the time instead of being the light amongst the darkness. So, Lord, how, how in my life do, you want to, do I want you to just deliver me instead of work through me? And then lastly, where in my life have I been treating Jesus as a consultant instead of the very word of God? Where have I been treating Jesus as just a guru, as the expert in which I can just hear his advice and take it and leave it instead of the very words of the living and true God? I had a college friend who, he was in college, he was getting a finance degree because he wanted to become a financial planner, financial advisor. And he had a professor who in one of his classes told them that on average, you're going to make this great financial plan and you're going to present it to them. They're paying you for this and you can expect people on average to follow that plan up to 15 to 20%. Isn't that nuts? That you have someone that's supposedly an expert in their field and they are giving you your catered, customized financial plan and you're only going to follow maybe a fifth of it? Can't we do the same thing with Jesus? That he gives us the very words of life and we can, oh, I, I agree with that. Okay, I'll, I'll implement that. But this other stuff, no, I'm just going to cut that right out of my Bible. I'm just going to ignore like it's not even there. And if you, if you want to continue doing this self-audit, just go back to chapters 5 through 7, the Sermons on the Mount. It is the gold standard of what Jesus has for us. I mean, if you want to start talking about um, things like uh, adultery. It's not about adultery or the physical act. It's about adultery of the heart. It's not about murder, but murder within the heart, in which you are holding on to grudges and, and you wish harm on other people. If you want to start looking at, at finances and every other aspect of life, you just go back to those few chapters and you'll be convicted where you've seen Jesus as a consultant instead of the very word of God. Because Jesus, he is the disruptive king. The very word of God coming in all humility. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this group of people. As we've gotten into your word, help us to see you for who you are. You're, thank you for Jesus, for sending him, for sending to save us, not just out of our current situation, but meeting us at our greatest need, dealing with our guilt and our shame and our sin. Help us to see him as the one, the delivering king, the very word of God coming in all humility. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.